Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the intersection of sport ethics and organizational decision making with our special guests, Amanda Segris and Dustin Thorne. Beginning with the introduction to the sleepy model, we will then move to discuss Kyle Larson and his Twitch controversy before diving into how sport organizations can evaluate the social, legal, economic, ethical, and political aspects of a controversy to help make decisions about how they should respond. So if you're curious about what happened with Kyle Larson, Twitch, and NASCAR, or if you ever wondered what considerations sport organizations make when dealing with controversies, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to dive into a conversation that's been making its rounds in the sports media for the last few weeks, and that is Kyle Larson's use of the N-word on a live Twitch stream and the fallout of what happened after. But I don't want to discuss this the same way that most media outlets have. I don't want to talk about what the outcomes of this should have been for Kyle Larson or if NASCAR responded in the right or wrong way. We all agree that what Larson did was wrong. We all agree that the organizations like NASCAR or Chip Ganassi Racing should hold their athletes to high standards that reflect what they as an organization value. And we all agree that these organizations have the right to respond to situations as they see fit. But those aren't the things that I want to dive into today because those are the topics of conversations that are being had all over the sports media world. Instead, I want to talk about how sport organizations or organizations in general can use a decision-making model called the sleepy model to help them cope with crises like this when they arise, but just as important, put into place steps to help avoid these type of situations going forward. And what better way to do that than to bring in two professors I used to work with at Coastal Carolina University. First, we have Dr. Dustin Thorne, who is a tenured professor of sport management and program director at Xavier University in Cincinnati. And second is Professor Amanda Segris Esquire, who is the assistant professor and director of laws program at Thomas More University in Northern Kentucky. Dustin and I really first met when I took a job at Coastal in 2012, when he had already been at the school for about three years by then. His primary job was teaching classes like event management, sport finance, and most important for our conversation today, sport ethics. Amanda joined Dustin and I a year later, primarily in a role to teach sport law, but she slowly began adding other courses to her repertoire, including sport ethics, which her and I later ended up co-teaching. Now, the great thing about having both of them here together to discuss this topic is that they both generally come at issues and topics from different perspectives. Dustin having a PhD in sport management and Amanda having a Juris Doctorate with a background as a sport agent and contract expert. So by bringing them on today, we should be able to get a range of perceptions on how organizations can use this decision-making model to help themselves with various situations like the one we will talk about today. So with all that being said, let's dive into our conversation today. Dustin, if, if you maybe want to start us off because you've been teaching ethics longer than, than any of us. You've been teaching ethics longer than I think any of us have been teaching. So this is kind of in your <laughs> in your wheelhouse. And 
I'm assuming that most of the stuff that Amanda took when she taught ethics and then the stuff I've taken from Amanda, all that orients with you. So I'm guessing that you've, you've taught this sleepy model forever. So can you maybe talk yep. about it in two parts and tell us a little bit about what the sleepy model is? And really the thing, the part I think is even more important is why is it important for us to have that model in, in sport or just in management in general? Sure. First, SLEEPY is an acronym standing for social, legal, economic, ethical, political, and then educational. And then that last E, the educational, why it's SLEEPY and just not SLEEP with three E's is that not all organizations deal with an educational component. So it would apply to something like a high school athletic administrator or intercollegiate athletics. But essentially what the SLEEPY model is, is a decision-making model that can be used both on a micro and macro level. So when an issue arises and an organization needs to make a decision, it's a way of looking at how the decision to be made is going to affect these different components. So if I decide to do A, how, what does that mean to the social ramifications, both internally of my organization, but also externally to my consumers, constituents, community at large, based upon the potential options of the decisions that you can make? Now, why is that important to sport? Well, for a number of different reasons. One, sport has governance, right? We have governing bodies that need to make decisions that will create standards across the entire platform of sport. So from that micro perspective, those organizations like to consider the decisions they're making, um, not just internally to the individual organization, but how does that affect all of the organizations that are going to prescribe to that standardization? Another big thing is the fact that sports is global, right? It affects cross-culturally. And so the need for these decisions to be vetted from multiple perspectives, you need to take a little bit of that time and that multi-perspective look um, at the issue. And so those are some key components as to where and how it's used in sport. And I think that's a great introduction to it, and it gets right into kind of the application part of, of what I want to talk about today because with everything that's been going on with the coronavirus and sport being shut down around the world, every organization is kind of looking for different ways to create content and, and to keep their sport relevant and to provide things for their consumers to interact with and consume still um, because I think a lot of organizations are still worried about potentially losing fans. If people aren't consuming sport for months at a time, they're, I think they're worried about that, that discretionary money being replaced with other activities. So in that light, uh, NASCAR has been doing something to try to get their drivers to interact with their consumer base. And that leads to an individual that is pretty well known on NASCAR in the NASCAR circuit named Kyle Larson and something that he did. I want to provide a little bit of background because I'm not a big NASCAR person. I know depending on where you are regionally, a lot of people might not be. Um, so I want to provide a little bit of background on who Kyle Larson is to kind of drive home the relevance of what happened. And then I want to talk a little bit about what happened. So Kyle Larson is a 27-year-old stock car driver who drives on the Sprint NASCAR Cup Series. He's been racing professionally, at least from what I could see, since 2012 when he began to work for the Automobile Racing Club of America series. He then moved to the Xfinity series the following year and then finally up to the major leagues or the highest rank, which is the NASCAR Cup Series in 2014. 
at that point, he signed with Chip Ganassi Racing, and he drives the number 42 car, and he's been working with them ever since 2014, so for the past six years. As he rose through the stock car ranks, he was very successful. He won the Rookie of the Year in back-to-back-to-back years for the Automobile Racing Club of America Series, the Xfinity Series, and then the NASCAR Cup Series. Over the course of his eight years, he's competed in 223 races. He won eight poles, won six races. He placed in the top five 56 uh, times, and he placed in the top 10 101 times. So almost half the time that he races, he finishes in the top 10. And all of that led in 2017 to him winning the Mobile One Driver of the Year. So this is a person that is extremely accomplished and well-known. Even in 2020, with a very shortened year, he finished 10th in the Daytona 500, and when they suspended everything, he was actually ranked 7th in the Cup Series standings. So Kyle Larson has been a staple of the racing world and one of their best racers really for the last eight years, which provides you hopefully a little bit of background for what happened uh, on April 12th, which, as I was saying, With all the races being shut down across the U.S., NASCAR was looking for a way to create content to give their fans something to watch. So they created something called the eNASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series, and they created six virtual races to be run every Sunday to take place of the races that were supposed to be run. So far, the series actually has been a big hit. They showed on Fox or FS1, and they're drawing about a million viewers, which is pretty good um, for an eSport. This league uses something called iRacing, which is a form of eSports. The website describes iRacing as the world's premier motorsport racing simulator. So on April 12th, Kyle Larson was on that iRacing platform, uh, racing and practicing with some other drivers. They were broadcasting what they were doing on Twitch, which is a form of social media that allows people to stream out live their video games so that other people can watch them. And during the stream, Kyle Larson, when he was trying to talk to his friends, was having some problems hearing, and he said the N-word, which immediately the other drivers on the broadcast noticed and said something to him. The following day on Twitter, he came out and apologized, saying, hey, I just want to say I'm sorry. Last night, I made a big mistake and said the word that should never, ever be said. Unfortunately for him, at that point, it was kind of too late, as on April 13th, in response to what he said... Chip Ganassi Racing suspended him indefinitely from the team, which was then followed by NASCAR suspending him indefinitely from the NASCAR circuit, and they ordered him to complete sensitivity training and said he had to complete that before they would remove any suspension. And then following that, a number of his corporate sponsors, which are huge in NASCAR, uh, the ones that I could see were McDonald's, Credit One Bank, and Chevrolet, all them terminated their sponsorship deals with him and pulled their money. So a lot happened from a very small video clip that made the rounds from Twitch. So kind of with that background in place, I think this is a great spot to bring in Amanda to start talking about one of those letters of that sleepy acronym, and that's the legal fallout. Amanda, can you speak a little to how maybe these sponsorship deals or or these general contracts are structured to help explain why these companies felt that they had to terminate them? Sure. So it's really an important clause of every contract that even in employment contracts, it's not rare to see morality clauses. But particularly when you're dealing with sponsor agreements where you are picking an athlete or celebrity to represent your brand. And so morality clauses really date back. It's kind of funny. Some of the research I was doing from the Journal of Legal Studies and Business has 
morality clauses and contracts are really dating back to like the 1920s with Hollywood, oh, wow. where, yeah, where celebrities in Hollywood were obscene or were having affairs. And so they started to really put some of the language in there that isn't too subjective because courts aren't going to be favorable on that. But, and, and you can't control the behavior of someone, right? Yeah. You can't control a stance that Chick-fil-A wants to take on something. But what you can do is protect yourself if Chick-fil-A is representing your organization and saying, hey, if this has a substantial negative impact on our business, or if there's a lot of public disrepute, then it's going to allow you to terminate the contract without being in breach of contract and without owing them the remaining money on the contract and, and those sort of things. You said it's it's kind of broad based. Is there anything specific that are normally in there uh, that provides examples of things that would lead to a violation uh, of a morality clause? So it it varies. Some contracts will put including but not limited to or such as, and they'll they'll list some things specifically. But um, in my former life, I worked for a sport agency as a contract attorney and. I pulled up one of our old contracts for our division one basketball coaches mm-hmm. and um, Frank Martin at basketball coach at university of South Carolina. I have his contract in front of me and I pulled up his clause. We have in the termination for clause reasons the university may terminate. They shall have the right to terminate this employment agreement prior to its expiration date. If there is cause for terminating employees employment for purposes of this the term termination for cause shall be defined as follows the first one says substantial neglect of any duty or responsibility the second one's insubordination the third one reads conduct of employee seriously prejudicial to the interests of the university and or that is seriously adverse to or has a significantly negative impact upon the reputation of the university or its athletics department as determined by the president in consultation with the athletics director. Now, the reason that last part is in there and is so important, the as determined by the president in consultation with the athletics director, what that does is it is giving the organization the power to, because it's a subjective thing, Mm -hmm. right? What is seriously prejudicial to the interests of a company or university or organization? I mean, it's near impossible to draw statistics on, Ticket sales went down because of what Kyle Larson said. You don't, you don't know how to statistically pull that out. So to give the power to, as determined by the president in consultation with the AD, that's what companies will do to keep the ball in their court and say, look, if this is not in line with the mission or repu- reputation of our organization. So McDonald's, they definitely have these in here where they say, hey, this is not the image we portray. We sell Happy Meals. We are a family business, and, and that is not in line. So you can try to challenge them, but they're often worded in a way that it's pretty clear what behavior rises to that level without giving the specific examples. If you give specific examples, you might be pigeonholing yourself into it gotcha. and saying, oh, what I did isn't on that list. And then also you'll see that maybe the other side might be hesitant to sign it with our coaches and athletes and stuff, you'll see like DUIs get questioned a lot. They're like, Ooh, is that something that's seriously prejudicial to the interest of the reputation of the organization? And we would argue if we were defending our client, no way people get those all the time. 
wasn't covered that much in the media and it's fine. But then the company might want to protect themselves and say, no, no, that got a lot of publicity and is not the type of person we want representing us. Um, So whether we're talking about the sponsors here, like McDonald's dropping Kyle Larson or NASCAR suspending him as they did indefinitely, I'm not sure how long they'll keep him suspended. I think I also read that they're going to require he has to do some sensitivity training. Mm -hmm. Uh, But all of these things are well within their contractual rights as long as those uh, morality code of ethics of conduct clauses are in there. So kind of taking what you said and and going back to what Dustin talked about with the sleepy model, it seems like the big thing with these morality clauses is like you mentioned the subjectivity of them. So the organization can choose to continue orienting themselves with the driver or as you were talking, I thought of like the Tiger Woods scenario where a lot of sponsors dropped him, which I'm assuming for the same type of morality clause violation. But they, they can choose that, and with the sleepy model, they're legally protected if they choose to no longer associate with that athlete as long as they have those clauses in there. It seems like when we're talking about this decision-making model, it's not just considering what I can do right now, but it's looking at it from the entirety of a situation. So planning for things before a decision even needs to be made about whether we suspend an individual or drop them entirely. Is that is that in line, Dustin? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to look at it from both ends, both what can I do to protect myself on the forefront, but then also kind of the the aftermath as well. You know, after I've activated a potential, you know, legal clause in a contract, what then does that mean going forward, okay. you know? So, like, for example, uh, the social aspects, mm-hmm. right? Had NASCAR or the team or McDonald's not created these legal clauses in a contract, the question would then become, well, what does that mean socially? Is it going to be perceived as perpetuating a negative ideology that our country has been battling? And so using that legal clause also then sets you up for the other parts potentially of the sleepy model. So in going in contrast with the social aspect, this action, taking that legal clause, also allows them the opportunity to then voice through either PR or even potentially even future uh, branding methods and marketing as to how the race team, these organizations, NASCAR are all united and fully against what that word implies and the ideologies around it. Mm, Gotcha. So the interconnection of each of these is really important in the model. It's not just looking at the legal individually. It's it's looking at, okay, are we legally protected? What can we do there? And then tying in, well, what does that say about us um, from a social standpoint? And then how do we get that message out? Or how do we turn this into an opportunity to maybe get positive press about it instead of the negative association of, of being linked to this individual? So yeah, they are definitely interconnected. And I would also say from the legal perspective, the educational piece is also closely tied to that one in a lot of ways. If we learn from this, oh, shoot, that may not have fallen very clearly within the language of our clause. Uh, We got to be careful because otherwise in the future, if we terminate and it wasn't a valid termination for cause, we might owe millions of dollars to someone. So we might go back and tweak our language or think of new scenarios. I always think as a professor, I know you guys can relate, my syllabus gets longer and Mm -hmm. longer and longer each year. Mm -hmm. And that's because Students never cease to amaze me with new creative ways and loopholes that they come up with things that I'm like, oh, shoot, I better add that into my syllabus. So the educational piece for the company or organization itself can tie to the legal where you say, hmm, I need to 
improve upon my language or maybe even improve upon how we're vetting people before we select them as sponsors. Yeah, and, and as you both were talking about the legal, the where my mind went a lot is some basic marketing principles we talk about with like brand association about wanting to make sure from planning from a long-term standpoint, I mean, as you're kind of pointing to uh, with that educational, that long-term standpoint, we need to make sure that we're more careful with selecting individuals so that our association is is seen as positive. Not saying that they weren't careful in vetting someone like Kyle Larson, who, from what I could find, hasn't had any issues like this in the past. So they might have been careful with that, but maybe not even just the vetting, but also making sure that when they're coming in, you're educating them at, hey, this has happened in the past with past drivers. We need to make sure that you understand that you cannot do this or these might be the potential consequences. And that ties into this principle about the organization doesn't want to be linked to racism. They don't want to have that brand association with someone who says something like that, which is why I think the number of these companies, as as you both have said, have kind of decided to pull out. Dustin, can you maybe talk a little bit about the economic part of the sleepy model and how that might tie into the decision-making around what's going on with Kyle Larson? Sure. And one of the things I was going to mention before about the interconnection between mm-hmm. these is that there's, we mentioned the legality and the social have potentially, you know, some negative in terms of applying them, but, but also there is a reward on the back end uh, from that in terms of on the outside, it can be perceived as positive. Mm-hmm. But even though you're getting those positives in terms of people perceiving, oh, they're doing the right thing, this was the right action, this could lead to potentially fewer people wanting to buy tickets. So you lose a revenue stream at particular events if Kyle Larson were to be reinstated and is back to driving. Maybe you have to hire extra security Mm. at your events because of potential protesters that want to voice their uh, opinion on the subject. You know, the loss potentially in revenue just from an operations standpoint that you're having to now put out more uh, PR campaigns. Um, You might have to change your messaging. You're dropping a potential client in terms of a sponsor. So are you going to have to go and recontract somebody else so that you can have a positive ROI? So there's definitely... An, an economic impact to all of these constituents. I mean, Kyle Larson lost his job, so there's loss in revenue. NASCAR could have some impacts to this. Obviously, these sponsors could as well. So it's another aspect to be thinking about. So even though the, the decision of doing something might have uh, positive social ramifications, it could also then have negative economic, which is part of why you want to look at these multi-dimensions in order to come up with what is going to be the best decision for us moving forward. Yeah, and as you're talking, one of the things that I think is really important, picking up on what you said, is organizations understanding who their key stakeholders are because different organizations mm-hmm. might be affected by an individual saying what Kyle Larson did in, in different ways. So you said, you know, maybe there might be a decrease in ticket sales as a result of this. So the organization needs to look and see, okay, well, this is what the offense was. This is who the person is. What might be the, or how might our stakeholders perceive this? And again, it kind of, it made me think uh, again of, of Tiger Woods because Tiger Woods has had really two major instances that were treated very differently by his sponsors. He had the whole cheating thing that happened. And when that happened, he lost almost every sponsor, at least from my knowledge. I think the one big one that stuck with him was Nike. But I think for the most part, his sponsors dropped him in, in a large part citing the morality clause that Amanda talked about. But if you then fast forward a couple of years, I think just maybe two years ago, he got a DUI in Florida. Like, pretty bad scenario and it really wasn't covered a whole bunch 
It, uh, I didn't hear anything about major sponsors dropping him. No one uh, in his sponsors that I know of really chastised him. So we have we have two events that are both potential violations of this morality clause. And for whatever reason, I think in evaluating those stakeholders, the stakeholders, maybe there was a determination made by his sponsorships that those stakeholders don't care as much about the DUI. So the economic or the potential economic loss of people being upset with us as a company for keeping him on is much smaller than it was when he was cheating because a lot more people apparently, or the evaluation was a lot more of those key stakeholders cared about that cheating. And if we continue to associate with him, they might boycott us. They might not buy our products. And so I think that's an interesting aspect to this is that you have to understand who your stakeholders are, who your primary and tertiary stakeholders are when you're doing this evaluation and you're reacting or you're making a lot of these decisions based off of information you have about them and how you think they might react to a situation. Yeah, I would add one thing mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that is that, you know, when I teach ethics, I, I'm often talking about how it's evolved, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're in a constant state of change. And so the way we think about things and our interactions and what is important and of value to, to us from a societal perspective, but also individually, they will change over time. So another reason as to why there potentially could be different decisions made around situations that might be perceived as being similar in nature could also be an interpretation of where our values have changed, both independently from an organizational standpoint, but then even from a societal standpoint as well. That's not to imply that DUIs are less important and so forth, but it does speak to something about valuing both from an individual organization standpoint as well as a societal standpoint in terms of the decisions that we make. Uh, I think that's a great point. I think that I think that kind of ties in a, a little bit to the next aspect uh, of the sleepy, which is that ethical. Amanda or Dustin, would one of you uh, talk a little bit about how how that might be applied to this specific situation with Larson? Well, I think going off of the last points that were made, which are really good points, and again, the law is also based on our values, and we've seen that change over time too. And, And sometimes it's a really slow process to realize that, um, hey, over the last decade or even the last century, our priorities have shifted or, or our sensitivities have changed. I think I, it would be a good time when we're talking about the ethics to bring up Bubba Wallace, who's the only, I believe he's the only African-American uh, NASCAR driver. Mm-hmm. And he, he posted a really long quote on social media. And just a little excerpt of it, I think, speaks to the ethical component. He says, it's not just a word. There's a ton of negative meanings behind the word. It doesn't matter if a person uses it in an offensive way or not. The word brings many terrible memories for people and families and brings them back to a time that we as a community and human race have tried our hardest to get away from. He goes on to eventually say that he spoke with Kyle Larson and that he supports him and wants to help educate him on diversity and sensitivity. But I think that directly speaks to as a community and as a human race, we're really trying to get away from that dark part of our past as a country and trying trying to repair it. So ethically, not to be too much of a cynic, <laughs> ethically, I don't think it's the companies out here setting the ethical tone. It's, it's society, right? Yeah. It's us um, individually and collectively setting the tone uh, as to what we value and what we'll tolerate and what we're sensitive to. 
And you see that reflected in who we elect for our politicians. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that reflected in what's popular. So here, I think, is a good example where companies are, they're the ones responding to this, saying, you know, how's this going to hurt our bottom line? <laughs> and are we going to lose business because of this? And so I'm not sure that it's, again, I probably sound too much of a cynic, but I don't think it's the company itself that's saying ethically what's right for us to do. They have missions and things, of course, and they want to be in line with their brand. But I think it's more that their response to what the ethics of the of culture and their consumers are at the time. Yeah. Dustin, do you want to add anything? Yeah. The only thing I would add to that, because I would echo everything that Amanda just said, is that you know, from the ethical perspective, when we're looking at sleepy model, it's an opportunity for us to establish kind of where our ideologies, mm-hmm. you know, companies and organizations, you know, have mission statements and vision statements in which they're trying to push. And the actions that organizations have are ways in which they can uh, showcase these missions. And part of that is, again, an establishment of this ideology. So in relation to the issue we're talking about, you know, this is the team, this is NASCAR voicing that they are, I think, in line with society in terms of we don't want to have anything to do with the negative connotations and the negative ideologies and perpetuation of what this word means and has meant to many, many, many people uh, from our past. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think with some of the direction Amanda was going as well, it brings in that political aspect of tying ethics into politics. So, uh, Dustin, can you maybe uh, transition to talking about the political aspect of the model in in application to this scenario? Sure. You can look at it, I think, in two different ways. And again, it's kind of that micro and macro approach, right? Mm -hmm. What is the decision that we're making? How does that affect maybe the political nature internally to us, right? Is this going to change policy? Is it going to change the hierarchy of our organization? Um, But then also from the macro approach, how does this speak maybe to the broader political spectrum? Like where do we see, again, society kind of looking at what are kind of the political hot points and do any of these decisions reflect positively or negatively upon them because of that positive association people have with their favorite sports teams or their favorite players? You have to think much broader in that perspective. So in thinking about that political, one, yeah, you got to think about it. Well, how is this going to affect us internally? Are we going to have to, again, establish new policy? Are we going to have to write new procedures? But then also, where does this place a political board? Are, are people now going to start to look at us as, again, using, again, another keyword, that ideology? Are they going to perceive us as having, you know, uh, a political stance on a particular issue? And is that the stance that we want to be uh, perceived? In? Yeah. And when I think politics with NASCAR, I think one of the things it's important to point out is NASCAR is is based in Charlotte, which North Carolina in the past you know five years with bathroom bills have actually had the state and the athletic uh, teams that are within it actually have been facing a lot of interaction between the political sector and decisions that they are making. And so I think NASCAR is very familiar with these types of issues and things that they've dealt with in the past looking at that political consequence of this is happening around us or this is happening with our stakeholders, how we react to it, it definitely sends a message out to not only our fans, but to everyone else around us. Absolutely. I would agree. I mean, NASCAR, again, being headquartered in the South, had grown up as a very strong Southern fan base. 
the racial uh, issue that we're talking about here has been an issue that has been strongly uh, been on the forefront of the political nature of you know the states in the South position themselves to be on the right side of history. Yeah. If I were in the room, I would play devil's advocate. So if I were in the room with one of these organizations deciding whether or not to drop Kyle Larson or suspend him or, or what have you, I think uh, we also need to play devil's advocate on it when we're talking about the political category here, because we don't just mean politics, literally, but also the political game, right? And so as Dustin was mentioning, like, what's going to be the backlash and long-term implications? So to play devil's advocate, which I always love a good devil's advocate in the room, it helps you <laughs> analyze from every angle, you got to do that, mm-hmm. right? Where's the the danger in, you know, don't throw stones and what is it, live in a glass house and yeah. careful of living in a glass house and throwing stones. So if McDonald drops Kyle Larson, but they have another sponsor do something that's comparable, but not necessarily, or maybe their own CEO does something that comes to light. So I think you have to be careful. If I'm playing devil's advocate here, I would also say we are really super, super strict with the standards we hold people to. He's a 27-year-old kid. Now, that's, I'm not excusing it, and I'm not saying that, that he, he should make millions, right? If you're making millions, you should be held to a high standard, absolutely. But a little pop culture-y, um, the other day, I saw an interview with Reese Witherspoon, and she was talking about how her and her husband were arrested years ago because he got a DUI and she got out of the car and was told not to. And she was mouthing off to the officer and she got a, they both ended up in jail for it. And she gave a really good quote that I was just like, ah, oh, that's so refreshing. She said something along the lines of like, I'm human. Sometimes I make really good decisions and sometimes I make really bad ones. That was a bad one. That was embarrassing. I'm ashamed of myself for it, but I'm not going to hide and pretend like it didn't happen. I need to just embrace it, apologize for it, learn from it, et cetera. And that's a lot of what like Bubba Wallace's really long post, I, I recommend to the listeners that you go read it. That's a lot of kind of what I think where he concluded on the side of like, we don't need to crucify people for screwing up. But politically speaking, I think it's safe to maybe sometimes say, you know, maybe we don't drop them. But how do we spin this into a positive way and say, let's learn from it and give people second chances? Or perhaps that's the educational component um, that we talk about, too. How do we use this to grow? You guys may disagree with me on that one. No, I don't know. But I, I think what you were just saying, it reminded me of what happened with the Clippers, uh, I don't know, eight years ago. Amanda, I don't think you were at Coastal yet, but Dustin and I were there at the same time when this was going on, when comments were made by Donald Sterling. Similar type of comments, except uh, much more derogatory in nature and tone. And there was this big thing about the NBA should just force them to sell the team. And everyone was saying this and everyone was saying this. And Mark Cuban came out and he said basically exactly what you just said, Amanda. We need to be very careful about what we're doing, because if we force him to sell the team, if we as as the, the board of governors vote to force him out, what type of precedents are we establishing? Because. What happens if someone else, another owner, has a private conversation that they're having with someone recorded that might not be as derogatory in nature, but they say something that other people might find as offensive? Are we laying the groundwork to force owners to sell for things that they say that they are meaning to be private conversations? And he was very forceful of that point, and he got a lot of backlash from that from the media. Now, I think the media forgot the second part of what he said when he said, I would vote for him to sell the team. 
he was he was making your argument though and if you actually fast forward what he was talking about actually came to fruition because a year or two later the owner of i believe it was the atlanta hawks made some comments and he was uh, basically forced to sell the team in a similar way that sterling was quote unquote forced to sell the team like he made the comments and he knew that that vote was probably coming and it could go against him so i do think that from this sleepy standpoint amanda what you're saying is is right on it's not just to what dustin has been saying it's not just about the individual decision i'm making in this circumstance that micro view but dustin's i think done really well to, to hammer on it's that macro view picture as well of if we do this in this scenario what if something else happens we're going to have to react the exact same way because if we don't react the same way we're almost setting it up for more criticism of us yeah i agree and i think that's why the sleepy model is so great because you're not just looking legally can we terminate yes so do it you know it's like hold on we need to look at this from this multifaceted issue and make sure that precedent was a really good word that you established that we're setting the right precedent we're aligning ourselves with the right mission values and implications that we want going forward and i think that's why this ethical model is such a good way to help you make a decision because you're collectively looking at it from yeah as you said that macro view and i think that leads us well into kind of this last section of uh, as dustin said not all people include this but that educational and we've talked about we've hit on some of the uh, ways that this can be educational for the different uh, stakeholders but what i would like either of you to to touch on um, specifically with tying this into social media because twitch is a form of social media and i think with social media in general regardless of the fact that it's been in in most people's lives now for a decade I think most people feel um, very protected on social media. And I, I think that is what happened in this scenario. Carl Larson was talking to his friends in, on social media, and he didn't realize that it, maybe it was being broadcast out to everyone. And so could, could one of you maybe talk a little bit about how we can take some of this and apply it into an educational way around maybe social media policy or what we can teach our athletes or organizations from this about use of social media with professional athletes or just in general? I'll take the first stab at it. I mean, I think one of the first things that can be learned from this is the lack of, you know, uh, privacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't matter what type of social media platform you're really using. Once it's put out there into the ether, it's out into the ether. And so a lot of people think that they can hide behind an avatar, behind yeah. some type of stage name or so forth on social media. People who are savvy enough can find the origination of what is said, done, video, whatever it might be. So one of the first things I think is to just understand on using this technology, which is great for our abilities to communicate and the fact that, you know, a NASCAR driver can still practice in a real time type of scenario using Twitch and tech. I mean, these are all great things. But they also come with a responsibility, right, that um, it's essentially completely private, that we still need to hold ourselves to a potential or we would if we were in a public setting. So the first thing to think about is that social media using those platforms is still in the context largely of still being out in public. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. Amanda, do you have anything um, to add to that? Um, not really. I think he covered it well. I think the lack of privacy is a really good point when I, again, my mind goes back to the legal side because that's my background. You know, it, the clause isn't written in a way that says only if you do this publicly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's a different world we live in. And 
that's the standard. And so you've just got to, you've got to be aware of that. And it's a high stakes game when you're making as much money as you are and you're as, as popular as you are. So yeah, so I totally agree with what Dustin has to say there. And I think they're all things that companies need to keep in mind as they enter into either employment agreements or sponsor agreements, whatever it may be with people yeah. and, and reflect that in their language. And, yeah, and like I, you said, even in their reasoning of them. I, I think the one thing that I w- w- would add to what both of you are saying is, is as kind of Dustin was pointing out, so social media is basically, if we're on it, everything we're doing is public. And regardless of the fact that it's been around for the length of time it has, and a lot of our professional athletes and even individuals working in athletics have had access to this for a large part of their life, people still have that mindset that they can hide, as Dustin said, behind behind their avatar. And I think what this, this shows or this uh, is an example of is it's important for organizations to either have a form of social media training or to have specific policies for use about social media. Because even an athlete like Kyle Larson, who has been really on the national stage since 2012 and probably using social media since that time to promote himself and in, in his, his sponsorships, even though he has that familiarity with it, he still might feel that he is in private or he still might not have complete understanding of the platform that he's using, something like Twitch where he might not have used it that much. So for these organizations to take all of these aspects that we're talking about today and put it into either a policy or some form of educational training or workshop to walk people through how to use this and some of the maybe risks in using it and some of the pitfalls to point to other people who've gotten in trouble in similar situations. I think that's a great way for companies to proactively apply this sleepy model and take that macro approach of trying to handle a situation maybe before it is created versus using it from that micro standpoint, as Dustin pointed to, to dealing with the situation after it already happened. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think it even more broadly speaking, maybe it's just a lesson for all of us to sometimes like take it a little slower before Mm -hmm. we jump into, I know we've got to, you know, stay on the curve so that we are keeping up with the Joneses and making money and you got to be the first. But yeah, Twitch is a somewhat newer thing and the eye racing. We're in unprecedented times with this coronavirus and sports being canceled and streaming things. And so, yeah, maybe there's just a broader lesson of like, um, let's, let's not get too big for our britches sometimes when something happens. Let's make sure we understand it and the implications around it before we just dive right into blast it everywhere and make millions off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else uh, either of you uh, want to add before uh, I cut us off here? The only thing that I would add is just, you know, the benefit that the sleepy model has is that multidimensional perspective. And so it does allow, even in the nature of applying it, we were just summing up about how you can take a step back for a moment. You know, you have to make a decision. And even that decision could still be on a very short timetable, but taking that step back to uh, take the initiative to look at how these multiple dimensions are going to affect whatever the decision is going to be in terms of the outcomes that could happen to it still provides you the opportunity to manage your risk and hopefully have as much reward as you can have. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a great way of summing it up and also just a, a great way to end it. I want to conclude by first thanking both Dustin and Amanda for taking the time to come on to talk with me about the application of the sleepy model within this very kind of specific context. Hopefully you've learned a little bit today, not just about this context and how we can go about evaluating the social, legal, economic, ethical, and political 
factors with it and then use that to educate individuals. But hopefully you've also learned how to take some of this uh, ideology that we've talked about in this decision-making model and go and apply it to other contexts. Now, specifically, we're focusing on the world of sports, but this model can be applied anywhere within any type of organization where the managers are faced with decisions that they have to make. I think one of the key takeaways here is that this model is not meant just to deal with an individual situation at that micro level that Dustin was talking about, but also to be applied to the macro setting to try to help us before situations even arise and guide our actions. As Amanda continued to point out as well, we need to make sure that we consider not these aspects individually, but we need to make sure we look at how these aspects and how these variables are interlinked. So we're not just looking at the legal aspect, but we're looking at the legal in association with how it might affect the social, the ethical, the political, and the economic. And finally, I hope that you've learned that it's not just enough to go about learning about each of these aspects, but also putting into place a way to educate our employees or the people that work for us about these issues so that way we can avoid these situations or scenarios in the future. If you have any questions about the sleepy model or about the application of ethics within this line of decision making, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Follow us to stay up to date with upcoming podcasts and to see when new podcasts post. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.